0: I think that the single most important thing I can do as a photographer is to challenge readers to become aware of their own quick judgments and to suggest that maybe they take a bit more time and allow things to work on them.
1: I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour, my chance to talk with photographers and people involved in the medium. We learn about their backgrounds, thought processes, and ideas that have shaped their work. Susan Lipper's iconoclastic work in photography has continuously pushed the boundaries and opened new avenues to the way we look at and experience images. She's the author of three monographs, including Grapevine and Shrimp, and her work has held numerous museum collections, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and the Victorian Albert Museum in London. In 2015, she received the Guggenheim Fellowship, which she's been using to pursue a long-term project set in the Californian desert. Most recently, a powerful solo show at Higher Pictures in New York featured her work from Grapevine, the first time this work has been exhibited in the U.S. I sat down with Susan at her apartment in New York, and we talked about her incredible trajectory as a photographer, starting at the very beginning. A
0: neighbor had a dark room in his apartment, and it was a long, hot summer, and I was about 12, and so it was really just straight into the chemical aspect. I guess I'd also been interested in chemistry at the time, so the whole idea of just pouring chemicals into things and seeing the magic. Yeah. Yeah, so it was just very early on, and then... In high school. Yeah, in high school, I was on the the yearbook, the literary magazine, the photo club, all of that. Mm -hmm. and uh, the one slightly illegal thing I've probably done is to make an extra copy of The Keys to the Dark Room. Mm
1: -hmm. So the obsession started early on.
0: It did, um, but as an undergraduate, well, it was impressed upon me early that a liberal arts education was important, and so I majored in English literature with a concentration In the Romantic Poets.
1: Where did you do your undergrad?
0: I went to uh, Skidmore College in upstate New York.
1: Uh You you mentioned uh, just before that it had been impressed upon you that a liberal arts education was important. Where did that come from?
0: I think it was my family. I think my mother felt that I could go be an artist at some other point. Uh You know, do this first and then you can do that. And uh, it was enormously valuable. Mm -hmm. I'd say for the most part... My family had pretty mercantile values. Mm-hmm. They were not necessarily educated. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably, I probably stand out in that, in that respect. What's interesting is uh, my mother had wanted to be a journalist. And uh, my father had dabbled in the travel industry. Uh-huh. So it's an intersection of those, of those things. I think my mother was always constantly amazed at how a story could be told so many different ways in the newspapers. Mm. And she would like collect clippings of one event and show how each journalist or writer somehow skewed the event.
1: So she was very journalistically literate.
0: Extremely. Huh. But then she went and studied banking and finance.
1: That's so interesting in, in, like, in light of the work that you'd go on to do. Like she was showing you that. As a kid,
0: I mean, it was constantly dissecting facts. Like, um, I can't remember. I think I was in school and we all had to write an assignment from encyclopedias. This is all like pre web. And I was using the old American Educator from the 1930s.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it was some article about ships going through the Panama Canal. And I was like the one kid in class that had a different name of the ship.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, My mother's logic was, well, yours was closer to the time, so it's probably correct. Uh Uh-huh. It was that kind of upbringing.
1: Interesting. So, liberal arts education, that's either for your undergrad. And then, did you know at that time that you wanted to, like the photography was your thing, that you wanted to make your life's work out of it?
0: Photography was always there. It became more dominant in the mid-70s. How come? There was something tremendously amazing about the 60s. I mean, the fact that Diane Arbus and, you know, Walker Evans both made these major bodies of work during, you know, not only just them, but a lot of photographers during these major, these periods of major political upheaval. Mm -hmm. I think there's a direct correspondence. I think also when I was very young, I had the sense that I owned the city Mm -hmm. and It just, it just seemed to make sense to be there, to be there with the camera at that particular point in time. Right. Then there's also the thing when you have the camera, it gives you a license to be someplace. Right. So who knows, maybe as a 13 year old kid wandering around the city, you know, it gave me the license to be there. I, I don't know.
1: Yeah. What did you do after your undergrad? Did you pursue your graduate studies right away?
0: There was a couple, three years there where it was pretty wild, uh-huh. you know, and then uh, then I wanted the, um, the structure of graduate school, and uh, by then I had committed to photography, and, uh, you know, I wanted the ivory tower.
1: And Yale, which is where you studied, was the ivory tower? Yeah. What kind of work were you doing there?
0: I was doing, you know, portraiture on a tripod, medium format portraiture. I wasn't working in the street, and I wasn't working... Uh, with a large format view camera.
1: Who were you photographing?
0: Like any other graduate student, you know, has to, you know, who had to produce work within the semester, chose something very close at hand, um, which were the other graduate students in all the different disciplines, and uh, I guess it's from there that I began to learn how to do, you know, how to work collaboratively with. Staged portraiture, mm-hmm. and um, I guess I had a theme for this work, which was that I wanted to investigate their narcissism in terms of how they wanted to appear to the camera, mm-hmm. and perhaps my own narcissism in choosing a subject who was in graduate school just like myself, like a so-called peer, mm-hmm. and what a peer would be, and what their relationship to me would have been and how that would have been reflected in the camera. And what we came up with, or what I came up with, or what I ultimately discovered, was that no matter what the relationship, the subject was performing for the camera.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And that the camera itself, the act of being recorded, took precedence. Mm -hmm. And it was that kind of knowledge that then informed work that I would do later.
1: There's something also that strikes me in those pictures, and I think you may have spoken about it, but um, just the idea of the importance of gesture, how that was a big, I don't know if it was something that you were looking for that you ended up with in those pictures.
0: I i guess I kind of felt that the painters would um, freeze into poses how they visualized, you know, it would look as a ultimate painting.
1: The painters that you photographed,
0: their concept of their body language was something frozen, you know, where you could imagine it being drawn later, mm. like a, a composition. Mm-hmm. Whereas the drama students probably were try- were soliloquizing and, you know, wanting to be caught in a convincing moment.
1: huh. <laughs> what did you do after you graduated Yale?
0: I, I I think a lot of us uh, just ended up for a couple of months going to London, um, and I ended up staying. And I started to photograph the literary community there. And
1: um, was that because of Bill Brandt's Literary Britain? Was that an influence?
0: Yeah, I thought his portraits were were amazing. And again, I'm sorry. This is one of these ideas I'm trying to um, to tie everything together. What I did with the Yale portraits was that I took people from a community mm-hmm. where they were already known, and I showed that community those same pictures. So to go back to this idea of narcissism mm-hmm. they knew who their audience was going to be mm-hmm. And when Brandt's pictures are you know of literary England, it was the same it was the same thing. it was a closed group, the portraits were meant to be viewed by others in that community. Mm-hmm. And so if you take that onto Grapevine, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. In other words, there's, there's this motif that I have used all the way through. So I do go to England because of my interest in Bill Brandt. I did some commercial work over there, um, I mean, this is kind of a joke, but I always thought you should make your mistakes in a foreign country. <laughs> and then uh, I ran into immigration problems in England. I mean, not. I mean, it was not traumatic. I mean, I think when you're in your 30s, everything is traumatic. I mean, it's not more traumatic than the other, but uh, what it did was make me completely aware of the fact that this was my country, that America is my country, that this is where I live, that I can't, you know, be thrown out of here. And it it tended to make me very, very, very patriotic. Mm -hmm. And uh, it occurred to me, I mean, it it had always occurred to me that um, as a New Yorker, the whole rest of the country, which is like an unknown factor, I mean, I'm literally talking about, you know, crossing any of the rivers around Manhattan. You, mm-hmm. you you get into foreign territory. And it's all equally foreign. But I'd always wanted to explore. So as a true New Yorker, I um, uh, ended up teaching myself how to drive.
1: Uh-huh. How old were you when you learned how to drive? Or taught yourself how I to was, drive? I
0: was, you know, um, mid mid to late 30s. You know, I probably still am... And not a very brilliant driver. Yeah, but when I set off I had never driven at night and uh, I was in a car and I uh, was photographing and driving by myself hmm and I I think it was really the the Walker Evans influence Eventually after about a year that made me go to the south.
1: I heard that you you'd go um, look up photographers and you'd go photograph them or their houses
0: no, I never got out of the car. What did you do? Well, it was an excuse to photograph along the way. Okay. Probably the way I ended up in Grapevine was I, you know, was in Lexington to kind of see where Sally Mann had been um, photographing. Yeah. And then um, as I was heading back north, I made a left.
1: Mm-hmm. The road less traveled.
0: Well, you know, which was left. I think it was uh, Highway 64. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know... She was always saying, "I can't believe you didn't stop in." I mean, I didn't know her at the time, but she thought that was unbelievable. But yeah. you know, when you're when you're on the road, you um, that whole that whole idea of how to be social mm-hmm. and deal with polite conversation,
2: yeah,
0: and it's it's very you know in in someone's home, it's it's very difficult because you're you're sort of like when I was traveling on the road, it was. Stop, go, Right. left. I mean, those were the only decisions you had. And you probably, you know, it was all before the cell phone. Mm -hmm. It was all before, you know, obviously GPS. And, you know, you had the idea of like, where can I go photograph? And then, damn, I need gas. And I'm (laughs) hungry. And where do I sleep? And you had to juggle all of those things. Right. So the idea of sitting and making polite conversation was probably... More than I could have dealt with at right. the time, anyway, i just didn't all right I did not all right i 'm socially awkward enough to say I did not get out of the car, but yeah. I used their houses as a arbitrary point on the map
1: so you 're on the road you 're meandering through the united states you 're interested in, you're interested in certain places because of work that you 've seen that drew you to those places, and then you stumbled upon this little hollow called grapevine. How did you stumble upon it?
0: I quizzed the motel clerk where I was staying about what to photograph. I think that probably every photographer does that, like what's around here. Yeah. And um, she offered to me to go photograph her family. I was—I mean, hmm. I described what I, um, where I envisioned going or the kind of, situation. And she, she mentioned her family. And, um, if you condense a lot of things that happened very quickly, I got adopted by them.
1: This is the family in Grapevine.
0: Yes. She was in a small town about an hour away and she told me to arrive in Grapevine and, uh, she picked up the phone and called various people and they were waiting for me. And, um, we all became fast friends.
1: Uh-huh. Where, where is Grapevine exactly?
0: Well, it. I mean, one of the unfortunate things about putting together a book mm-hmm. is that somebody has to give it a title. hmm And um, the book was called Grapevine because my English publisher liked the sound of that name. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of problematic things with naming a body of work after a um, specific geographical place. Or Grapevine doesn't actually exist. It's like one of my favorite musicals when I was a child, something called Brigadoon, which is a, a town that uh, only reappears every hundred years.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's not... A real place it, hmm. it really it really isn't there are people that identify themselves as being from grapevine but um that's talking about a very very tiny little road in a certain area and if you were to go half an hour in each direction mm-hmm. on that same major road and you mentioned grapevine they might think you meant somewhere else.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, there's a lot of grapevines in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not, it's not an un- unincorporated town. It's not a town. There mm-hmm. is no sign.
1: You were just talking about the, the problematic nature of that, but that, I feel that makes it, um, it, it almost, uh, plays into what you were trying to do with the work or that, just that idea of, you know, the difference between, I don't know, fact and fiction is the right...
0: I, by the time I was down there, I certainly did not was not interested in documenting a place. Right. I mean, I was interested in maybe making a certain kind of portrait that was more resonant than the kind of pictures I could have gotten of the Yale graduate students. I wanted something deeper... Or more core to be in the pictures than just narcissism. Mm-hmm. Probably by the time I had gotten to this locale, I um, was aware and was mystified by uh, the very different relationships between men and women that would happen uh, outside urban society. Mm-hmm. So the portraits. That I took, using a lot of the same methods, incorporated my question about. I mean, I was I was simply puzzled by all of that macho, and
1: uh, that you saw in general or within this particular group of people.
0: It probably was in general mm-hmm. in the South. It was a whole different set of values. I was intrigued and. Uh, attracted and repulsed at the same time. It was not one specific verbal response. And so when I made portraits, it incorporated this eye for this macho that had gone astray. And um, this kind of macho, this kind of destructive male influence or power, I had probably seen... Within my own family, so I was aware of it, and it was something that I, you know, wanted to deal with photographically. I wanted to understand. So that was like my side of it,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and my subjects' side of it. My subjects, who were ultimately my friends and adopted family. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I seriously mean adopted family. Like I'm still in touch with them today, and. Mm-hmm. You know, but what they were doing was they were already so heavily stereotyped. They were aware of the stereotype, and they were playing within it. Really? To show that they could then triumph over it, that they weren't victimized by it.
1: What other work was informing your own at the time?
0: I was influenced by both Larry Clark's Tulsa and Ann Golden's Ballad, and those were very important sources for me. Mm Mm-hmm. And I would refer to that tradition as being the subjective documentary tra- tradition where where you admit to being part of the group photographed.
1: And you felt like you were, with the Grapevine work, that you were part of the group being photographed.
0: Yes. And you see, that's where this, there's the slippage. Because mm-hmm. most people, when they come to Grapevine or that Grapevine work, they cannot imagine me as an insider they can't imagine that i was part of that community i mean i don't think i should be you know responsible for their their failure of imagination Mm -hmm. i mean they want to read me as what i look like from the outside and you know some of that's correct i'm a woman liberal artist from new york yeah and that's a persona That uh, exists throughout all of my work, and I want people to see me that way.
1: So, is what you're saying is that those two things, like being a liberal female artist from New York and becoming part of a community, are not mutually exclusive? They're not. You can do both.
0: Yes. I mean, that's there was a lot of very boring criticism leveled at me about uh, questions of representation and assuming that I was coming, you know, from a position of power with this work. But uh, it was much more even handed than that. Mm -hmm. You know, I identified with the community as I would any other. I mean, that just happens to be me. That's part of my, my nature. It might be one of the little Phillips in the work that make that work um, unique, but I didn't have boundaries in that direction.
1: I know the uh, the relationship between image and text has been a big part of your work, and I wonder if we could just talk about that a bit.
0: I've always been very sensitive to the role of uh, words and images. I was, you know, because of the passing of John Berger, I was rereading a lot of what he's written and, you know, him discussing words as anchors. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm very... Uh, sensitive to the role of words and images Um, and in my second book trip I play with that relationship
1: how did you do that
0: the pictures which are about the role of text in society or the loosening authority of text in America um, existed as a series and um, at some later point I had been well. I had been reading Frederick Bartholomew's writings, and uh, you know, I which I loved, and I, I I approached him and wanted him to maybe write a paragraph at the beginning of the book, and uh, that developed into a, a year-long relationship. with us going through about twenty-three different rewrites of the image and text combination, mm-hmm. um, I mean, we we'd never actually met in person. But, you know, it was a, a still, wonderful... Still to this day? To this day. He yeah. he does... Well, I believe he doesn't fly. And so, yeah, and it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. And, um, you know, I wanted there to be a, a dissonance, I don't know if that's the right word, between which story you believed and to invent your own story. The viewer invents their own story. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was an aspect to that work I hadn't really thought about initially, which was that he'd his voice is very male mm-hmm. and i consider my voice female and so that was a male versus female argument all the way through uh-huh i mean i don't know if it's a question of one side winning or the other mm-hmm. but uh you know the nature of words traditionally being well it's always it's a combative it's a combative relationship between words and images male and female
1: which forms some kind of balance
0: maybe or Lack of balance if <laughs> women are not given the appropriate platform.
1: I'm curious about you, just, you. So you just mentioned that you've always felt that your your work has a certain female quality to it. In what way?
0: Well, I go back to the subjective reality. And you cannot, uh, cannot separate that part of yourself. That's part of your vision, part of your understanding.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There's a big tradition of, of photographers working um, within the, the American landscape. You know, a lot of these photographers were, um, well, they were men. <laughs> and I guess I'm...
0: Cu- how amazing of you to notice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I guess what I'm curious about is how you feel about that. And as a woman photographer working in that same landscape how you see your place within that tradition.
0: It's the fact that primarily what we have is just the male stories. And, um, you know, theirs is not the only way of viewing the world. And we've talked about how important the subjective filter is. And, uh, you know, my filter is that I'm a woman. I I view the world based on my experience. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, if you go back to the title, Domesticated Land, um, I'm referring to a couple of things. I mean, the work primarily takes place in the desert, which basically cannot be domesticated. I mean, the desert always wins, um, historically. I mean, it just wipes it out. I mean, wipes out the work of man, um, for the most part, unless it's, uh, probably backed, I mean, potentially backed by a lot of military money and whatever else. But domesticated land also refers to the, um, the forgotten female pioneer. They went along discovering the country as well. But, you know, for the most part, I mean, there are a few important books, but their, their view of, of uh, exploring the country has not, has not gained much traction Mm -hmm. what's what's interesting is that they um they wanted to experience new lands as much as the men they wanted to get there they wanted to be uh you know to see it they were thrilled by being out there but whereas as i understand it the men were interested in conquering or claiming new lands the women's at least in terms of their writing, you can see that they were trying to figure out how to live there, how, how to actually domesticate the land, how do, how do we live in this place? Mm-hmm. So it was a totally different set of impulses.
1: And those impulses are um, that work that was done by w- women in those times has been neglected or forgotten?
0: Marginalized, probably. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the idea, I've read about feminist uh, geographers, for instance, and they've had a, you know, basically there's been some scholarship. I mean, they're not really hireable. I mean, the idea is that they've been told that the research has already been done, that there is nothing else they could add, Mm -hmm. you know, that there is no other subjective viewpoint.
1: Does that make you want to explore it even more?
0: Well, I, (laughs) I I, I just think that, you know, there's a certain... We're at a point right now where we are trying to become aware of all of of these other visions to reassess things that we've always taken unquestionably to to be true. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's a a very valid thing to do.
1: Hmm. What are your plans for this work?
0: I'm working on the idea of thinking of it as an exhibition, but primarily I think of it as a book. I think of it as an essay um, and probably all along, you know, if I look at it, I've been looking at parts of America that might create its that might contain its real soul, but that exist outside of the, um, the global, economic, you know, consumerist, I don't know, what is it? I'm thinking this word with this all-pervasive thing, this sludge of just sameness. And uh, I guess with this last segment, I'm telling a sci-fi fictional moral tale Mm -hmm. that that jumps around in terms of time, um, but ultimately suggests that there's a major battle to be fought of the individual versus the whole corporate military complex basically it's uh it's like lord of the rings or you know the i mean all of this goes back to romantic literature and the individual versus the whole world around it but you know i think there's a major a major battle and uh pretty much what this work is talking about is how it imagines a, figures, human figures, in the desert, the California desert, and basically we imagine this, these heroes or these human figures in the landscape, in the desert landscape, and how um, we don't really know who they are. I mean, they're, they could be tourists, they could be exiles, refugees, refugees. Um, but it's them versus the the um the land, the, I mean the landscape, the prevailing landscape, which um ultimately becomes obviously a, a military one. And uh if you look at California, uh, massive chunks of it probably all the West, but I'm just concentrating on California, are owned by the military. And um I didn't know that. Oh well, like for instance, in Twenty Nine Palms, it's like they're the largest employer for the area. It's I don't know whether it's nine hundred and sixty square miles or wow. something, something like that. It's massive, uh, and so that imp- the the military's impact, even on the fringe local economy, is is major. Mm-hmm. But you know, the military is is is. Um, you know, it's it's been made to withstand amazing things. I mean, they have their own generators, their own water. Um, I think they desalinate. Is that desalinate the water? I mean, they. If anybody can last, they they can. Um, but then you ha- you know you have the you have the individual against this, and I mean it's a larger force. I mean, whether it's the military complex or it's the uh, corporations, I mean pretty much, we're outnumbered, we're outgunned.
1: Looking at the work, the work is very quiet in a sense. It has a certain tone to it that in light of what you have to say about the work, it demands a lot from the viewer. What I'm curious about is how, how, you, how you think about your ideas and the complex nature of the work, how you think of it being received or, or looked at.
0: There's, there's something so great about... A book, which is it's finite, and the edit and the sequence become paramount. And given those tools, I think people create their own, their own readings. Mm-hmm. And whatever readings they come up with are are fine. Um, I think the whole point of having a library is you know that you can keep returning to various bodies of work, and then they speak to you in different ways at different times. I mean, I think that the only thing the photographer, a good photographer, should do is is feel that they've gotten it down, that it's complete, that it's it's as complete as they can make it, that what they have to say is actually in the photograph. Mm -hmm. You know, you can... You can view it on the page. you can view it in the edit. you can view it in the sequence and uh you know it's funny, but i I took um it's no it's not funny, it's amazing. I took a course with uh with Lisette early earlier on really yeah mm-hmm. back in nineteen seventy seventy nine or eighty I'm not sure anyway, but she said this most amazing thing, which is that she can look at a photograph one way. But she's talking about a single photograph. Mm-hmm. Sequences, series are different, but she said, I can look at, I mean, I believe they're different, uh, that she could look at a photograph one, one way a certain day and then return later and see something completely different. And, well, the way that she was saying it was that she found, felt that that was her right to return to return and have any idea that popped into her head
2: mm-hmm.
0: at that time, and that that we all should expect our responses to fo- to photographs to just constantly change. Mm-hmm. I think the advantage of the book format is that you can you can anchor it because of the 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 dialogue between the various images. I mean, you know, within within reason. You know, you can't. Text helps, but you you can't control how things are read.
1: You can anchor it in 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 terms of the the, the sequencing, and then also in terms of the context that you set and, and the the title.
0: And you know, to to some extent, and then history is going to come and change everything, or put a different context on things. You know, I think I think that the single most important thing I can do as a photographer is to challenge readers to become aware of their own quick judgments that they make on things and to suggest that maybe they take a bit more time and allow things to work on Well, I mean, if they want to, to allow it to work on them. Hmm. I think what's important is to, to say that we've been discussing two different modes the photographer's mode what goes on before choosing where and what to go uh, what to do versus um the construction of a, a fiction and what what becomes viable and um uh the work grows out of out of questions that that uh that i'm i'm bothered with that i'm plagued with and uh in retrospect like yeats who was um a primary influence the william butler yeats the uh the english poet who was also a bookmaker he um he used a literary persona and um that persona was was meant to be not confused with his own biological self, so that he could exist as many people at the same time while, in fact, being a politician or a governmental official, and yet, um, you know, he he could write through many different voices. And what's remained a constant in my work through all these years is that I'm a you know female photographer viewing the world through my my subjective subversive you know way of looking at things and um traveling from the east coast to the west coast and this this seems like a very unbroken unquestioned thing in terms of what I went through as a photographer deciding to take to take these choices but um somehow that synthesis was always there but it, in relying on a persona it becomes an unbroken thread, a useful device
1: I think that's a good note to end on thank you so much for having us here it was a real pleasure
0: my pleasure too
1: that was my conversation with Susan Lipper this episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman and was edited by Crystal Duhim. On Location Sound Engineering, courtesy of Lenny Pierre-Ramos. Music in this episode by Michelle Macklin, Damien Lazarus, and The Monks. To find out more about this interview series, visit us at magichourpodcast.org and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where we'll keep you up to date. If you have a minute, leave us a review on iTunes. It helps out a lot and we really appreciate it. Thanks for listening and see you next time.